Welcome back to the Hybrid Canine Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Hubble, and today we are on Instagram Live answering your questions. So if you want to tune in with us to one of these future episodes live, make sure that you're following us at Hybrid Canine on Instagram and TikTok. But today I wanted to kick it off with a question that we had gotten yesterday, which was in regard to how to make yourself more valuable. You know, I talk a lot about overcoming reactivity and overcoming some behavioral issues and a lot of it coming down to your dog having a lot of value in you as a handler, owner, leader, etc. And someone brought up a good question, like how do you how do you achieve that exactly, right? How do you get that engagement from your dog? And sometimes you get a lot of obscure answers around this type of topic. But I think that it, you know, my goal with this answer that I provided yesterday was to kind of break it down and make it a little bit more clear. And I think that there's um, some simple ways that you can do that, right? Um, of course, it's a more comprehensive type of situation than it can seem. So this is a very, you know, generalized answer. But when you want to build engagement with your dog, you know, you're essentially trying to compete with any other motivator. And how do you become interesting and more valuable? Well, you have to look at what your dog is innately motivated by. And for most people, if they look at their dog and they really think about it, their dog is going to be most motivated by food, toys, and affection. Not necessarily in that order, right? But generally, it's going to be food, toys, and affection. These are the the levers, if you will, that get your dog really jazzed up and wanting to do something, right? So what happens in a lot of homes, especially homes that are seeing behavioral issues, is that these resources that are really motivating to the dog have become openly available or are almost expected in a way, right? There's, there's not a lot of value in these resources as much as there is in households and owners where those resources aren't openly available. So what do I really mean by this? Well, it means that if you're someone that has, you know, your dog's food out on the ground all the time, if there's an abundance of toys laying around the house constantly, and if you're overcoddling your dog or just giving them affection all the time, you're going to really devalue these resources, right? Um, you know, if you're providing these things nonstop and your dog never has to learn how to work for them, suddenly when you do ask your dog to do something to work for that resource, right, whether it's outside, especially around a distraction, they're going to be far less likely to see the reason in doing that because these resources have been provided to them, you know, all the time. So the first step in making yourself more valuable is to increase the value of these main motivating resources, right? And so when you take these things up and you limit their access to them, it allows you to be the vessel in which all of these resources are provided, which is then going to inherently increase the level of value that your dog places in you as well. So I just wanted to share that on here before we really kick things off, because I think that that's something that stumps people up. And it can also make it a little bit more pragmatic when it comes to, well, why do I need to take these things up? Why can't I leave the food on the ground? Why can't I leave the toys out? Why can't I you know, not have my dog on the bed or the couch or whatever have you? And it's because you should be interested in playing the long game here. And in order to play the long game and provide these things a little bit more freely, you have to instill a lot of value in them first. And you can do that by making them more scarce and using them as a way to develop and cultivate uh, the leadership for your dog to where those resources and motivators flow through you. And this is going to allow you to be able to train your dog more effectively in the future um, and is also going to be the thing that answers the root question that I was addressing, which is how do you make yourself more valuable? You know, it's the same reason a lot of us, even if we don't always like our boss, right? If we're in a normal workplace, we respect them and we're willing to do the work is because we know that our boss is the vessel in which our paycheck comes, right? The resource that we really want. 
excuse me. So let me know in the comments if that makes sense. And uh, hopefully that was helpful because I know that's a common question and it's certainly something that I know a lot of people struggle with, especially when it comes to, you know, understanding why they are doing something that, um, you know, seems a little bit stiff sometimes. So with that being said, let's dive into some of these questions. Karen Adherney, Adherney asks, what is best for dog with throwing up and dish? So if, I think if you're saying that your dog is throwing up, you know, what is the best thing for them? Well, you might want to look at something like a, a, a bland diet for a little while, perhaps adding in some uh, goat's milk, something like that could be helpful for helping settle their stomach out. Um, but that's something to where it's obviously going to be very individual. I'm not a, a dietitian or a nutritionist for animals, nor am I a vet. So I don't think I'm in a position to really answer what's best for a dog that's throwing up other than to probably take them to one of those people if it's a perpetuating chronic issue. Um, but a lot of times, you know, if it's just your dog's upset by a certain food and they've been having something like that for a day, some goat's milk, something like that can help to, to settle their stomach down a little bit. All right, with that being said, let's get to the next one from Moth Team. Wondering how to help my dog to stop barking at people passing by out the door. The door is closed. Uh, we've talked about this in previous podcast episodes, but the number one thing that you're going to want to do is give your dog something else to do, right? Teach them, condition them to do something else when they feel triggered by those people, right? One of the first things that you can do is just limit your dog's access to the door, right? If your dog is able to get to the door and has a habit of doing that, you have to kind of change the status quo for them, right? So you have to, you know, recondition their perception of what it means to be at the door doing that. And so the first thing that you can do is just limit their ability to even participate in that behavior at the door by restricting the access to the space, keep, keeping them on leash, and then giving them something else to do. So this goes in tandem with actually practicing obedience outside of just the time that there's people barking at the door. But if you're practicing obedience and then you have a leash on your dog and you don't give them access to that, they bark, you can start giving them something else to do instead. Could be a downstay, could be being placed in a place, uh, in a place command somewhere else in the house. Um, there's a lot of different options there, but these are the initial ways that you can curb that behavior and then slowly over time recondition them to where they're not really as triggered by people passing outside the door. Um, that's a tough one. It takes a lot of discipline to get that um, to make a true change because if your dog's used to doing that and they've done it perhaps even for years, you're, you're undoing years and years of their own conditioning, right? And I think that's an important takeaway in general is that you have to understand that as humans, you know, we've got so many things running around our head all day. Life changes constantly. One day crypto's up, the other day crypto's down, you know, so um, things can happen very quickly in our world. But for dogs, there's a lot less going on. There's, they're very habitual and ritualistic in the sense that their days are generally very similar, right? They don't have all these other thoughts running through their head the way that we do. And so you have to understand that when your dog has had a routine and had ways of doing things, even if you just start training, you can expect to see that behavior change just happen overnight. You know, it's going to take a lot of discipline, a lot of um, dedication and perseverance to really make a significant change in your dog's behavior because you're overcoming, you know, perhaps sometimes years of them just doing something the same way, right? It'd be like if I started to tell you that you had to suddenly eat with your opposite hand, like your non-dominant hand. Could you do it? Yes. But, you know, some days you're going to be pretty slick at it. Some days are going to be super frustrating. Some days it's going to feel like you just have like a not a good connection with your, your non-dominant hand and you're going to get more frustrated, right? So just know that it's, it's an ebb and flow. 
And with training, it's not just linear. It's not, you're not just going up, right? Sometimes you're going to fall down. You're going to have fails. Your dog's going to have fails. And, you know, that's, those are the moments that it's most important to stay consistent and stay um, persistent in your mind and really visualize the end goal because uh, you have to have those affirmations and you have to have that belief that with the persistence and getting through the hard times that the uh, upside is, you know, coming soon. All right. Tik Nabar, my dog is most motivated by playing tug. How do I incorporate that into good on-leash behavior? So uh, one of the things that you could do with playing tug, and I just did this with a Malinois puppy that I've been training, um, is incorporate it in conjunction with like a place command and practicing recall uh, on a leash, right? So, you know, if you're working on teaching your dog leash pressure or something like that, you don't, might not want to implement it exactly on a walk, and you might want to, you, you know, I don't know. If your dog's super motivated by the tug toy on a walk, then that's amazing. A lot of dogs, when they're walking, aren't as motivated by toys, even if they are very toy-motivated in other circumstances. So, you know, you could keep the toy, you know, under your armpit or in a back pocket and encourage them to stay in the hill with the toy. That might be really complicated. Or you could leverage the tug toy with practicing recall, you know, having your dog on a place command and using that as a way to build distance and duration in that command by recalling them, providing some leash pressure so they understand that, and then giving them the tug toy from a further distance so they get this big run up and they come and get to run and, and bite the toy. Um, that was a, a really beneficial thing that we've done with this uh, Malinois puppy, Sky, that I've been training. Um, but that's one way to think about how you could incorporate the toy into that, right? And it's just very different for every dog. And if you have a dog that's just willing to start playing tug at any time, then maybe you can um, have your dog earn that toy by being in the heel command for some set amount of time. Then you give them a release, you play tug, you put them back in the command, and you continue walking. You give them the tug for a little bit longer, and you're just back and forth, right? But it, not necessarily you can be playing tug with them while you also walk at the same time. Um, you want them to basically think that, hey, if I walk in this correct position, at some point in the future, I'm going to be getting this toy. It's going to be super exciting. Nice, Mike. Yeah, thank you. For those of you that don't know, I'm also a recording artist, so that's why I have <laughs> such a ridiculous mic setup. And if you can find my music, then props to you. All right, let's dive into the questions now. All right, question from Candice Mikowski. What's up, Candice? Question on resources. If a dog gets used to getting treats to motivate to walk, what do you do when that doesn't work anymore? So this is a, a great opportunity for us to talk about reward schedules. And there's a lot of different types of reward packages. We go into detail on this in my upcoming, um, I guess, second release of the 90-Day Dream Dog Program uh, textbook and workbook. But um, you know, this is where you want to start thinking about the different reward packages that you're providing, right? And so it sounds like if your dog is reliant on treats, you might have been in a um, a consistent reward schedule where your dog believes that every time they do something, they are going to get a reward, which is how you teach behaviors initially. You want your dog to know that there's a reward coming, but at a certain point in time, you want to phase that out, right? So that it's not a requirement like you're noticing now. So you want to go to more of a variable reward schedule, meaning that your dog is superstitious and believes that there's value in doing the command because there's more than likely going to be a reward coming. But even in the absence of that reward, your dog is still going to do it because it sees the value in uh, knowing that it's more than likely going to come. 
So this is where you have to develop a cadence of, well, what's too often and then what's not rewarding them often enough to where they're just, they've given up hope that there's a reward coming at all. That's also where it's really good to switch up the motivator that you're using, right? Or the reward that you're using. It doesn't always have to be a treat. Your dog values affection as well. And even though it might not value it as much as a treat, you can use affection as a way to uh, reinforce your dog's behavior. So say, for instance, you have a dog that's walking there, you know, they've stopped, you know, they've done something well. Maybe instead of giving them the treat like you've always given them, you just give them a, you know, good boy, good girl, maybe a little rub down, quick little massage on their muscles or, you know, just some nice quick strokes on their fur. They're going to like that as well. That's going to reinforce and let them know that they're doing um, that they're on the right track there. So hopefully that helps. Um, but you'll want to look at how you are, you know, your essentially your reinforcement schedule or your package. And, uh, you can look into more information on that. If you want the, if you want, um, a copy of the worksheet that I've put together, uh, before the book comes out, just shoot me a DM and I'd be happy to send that over to you. I think it's really helpful in understanding the different ways that you can, um, condition your dog to these reward schedules. So Good question. All right, we've got another question from J.Sweets. My dog suffers bad separation anxiety. I did not crate train him. He's one and a half years old. Should I still try to crate train him? It has been challenging. <laughs> yes, you should absolutely try to crate train your dog. Um, here's the thing with crate training. I know it's challenging. It's, it's, it, it's a challenging thing in general. You know, you're teaching your dog how to be cool with being inside of this like small box. I mean, if, if it were me personally, I would have a hard time being crate trained because I don't like small spaces. Right. But with that being said, it is an extremely valuable skill. I think that not enough people look at crate training as actual skill, right? Um, they look at crate training as something that you either do or don't do, but we forget that it's, it's, it takes skill to be in a small space and be relaxed and be calm and to condition yourself to believe that it's actually a good thing, right? Or teach your dog that's a good thing. So with that being said, crate training is an invaluable skill in my opinion because they're probably more than likely in your dog's lifetime, they're going to have to be in a crate at some point for an extended period of time, whether it's at the vet, whether it's you know at a sitter's house, whether it's at a board and train program, something like that. I can't even tell you how many times in the past where there was a board and train that was not crate trained that would come through, had a very, very, very hard time and to where it made the first several days of the board and train completely, you know, basically useless because the dog is just so stressed out from being in a crate. So <laughs> when uh, your dog isn't crate trained, they lack a lot of self-soothing abilities. They lack a lot of ability to calm themselves down. You'll notice that exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of separation anxiety, right? And then you don't have any way to um, hold your dog accountable to creating that space, right? Um, so I would absolutely recommend crate training at any age, no matter how long it's been, you can condition your dog to enjoying and seeing and being peaceful inside of the crate. Um, for dogs that have bad separation anxiety, I always recommend people, I know it's a big expense, but if you can just, if you can afford it, I would definitely recommend getting one of those higher quality, uh, roto cut plates that are crates that are made out of more, you know, quote unquote, indestructible materials. This is going to be extremely useful if you have a dog that does have anxiety. Sometimes people will buy the, the wire crates, which are great if your dog is super chill in the crate, but if you've got a dog that's overcoming some anxiety, they might you know want to gnaw and bite at those bars. They're much easier to escape out of, so I would recommend you know the higher quality roto-cut plastics, ruffling kennels, gunner kennels. We have another brand. I can't remember the exact name of it, but 
those are the ones that I'd probably look towards if you can afford, you know, a crate that's a few hundred bucks. Then know that if you have a crate like this, it's going to last you literally your entire life. And it's also really great for uh, traveling as well um, because they are made to withstand impacts uh, should you be in an unfortunate circumstance where that happens. So would highly recommend crate training them. I know it can be challenging. Um, it's just like a lot of other training practices, right? It's progressive overload, meaning that we're going to be adding uh, frequency and duration in order to create um, an overall lo longer period of time in which your dog is chill being in the crate. Um, so just know that you're going to have to be steadfast if you want to begin doing this. You're going to have to turn off your compassionate, empathetic side of your brain, and you're going to have to um, probably feel like you're, doing, you're providing tough love. Uh, for your dog to become crate trained if they have a lot of anxiety because they're going to be whiny, they're going to howl, they're going to bark, things like that. And you're going to have to be steadfast and just not uh, giving them any attention and waiting for them to calm down. So, um, you know, best of luck to you. And of course, if you need more help with this, you can hop in the DMs and I'm happy to, to provide some more context for an answer there. If you're just joining in now, feel free to drop your questions in the Q&A box. We're going to follow up with a question from Tik Nabar says, thanks. I'm seeing that he's the backyard all-star. He will heal and walk at heel on command, place and recall, down, stay, nails it. The second the leash goes on for a walk, though, everything goes out the window. And this isn't super uncommon, right? Um, it means that perhaps you need to start working in higher distraction environments, but at a slower pace, right? So, um, you know, the backyard... That's one scenario, right? And that's a great step in the right direction. But this is a great uh, case in point to what I talk about a lot on here, which is that sometimes just one variable change can really throw off a dog, you know? So think about, all right, if we're going from the backyard to a walk, you know, if the walk's in the neighborhood, maybe even though that seems like a really small jump to your dog, maybe there's enough variables there that it's actually pretty challenging for them, right? And so maybe either shortening the walk and practicing just on your street at first, or even just going from the backyard to the driveway could be that one variable change that will allow you to take the next step forward onto the street or onto the walk um, without going directly from backyard to walk because that might be too big of a jump, right? And in some situations, it's all or nothing. Think about the difference between, you know, let's take rock, like bouldering, right? If anyone in here is into rock climbing or bouldering, you can't like really almost get the next rung, right? Like you either are getting the next rung or you're not, like climbing a ladder even, right? Say you're climbing a ladder, right? You can't almost get your hand to the next grip on the ladder to get up, right? Like you either your hand is on it or it's not. You're not like almost there, right? If your hand's just touching it, like that's not good enough. You're going to fall as soon as you try to get to the next rung, right? You need to get all the way to it. And so if you're noticing, hey, like I'm so close, like this, say the street is the next rung, but like you can feel your fingertips on it, but you can't put your whole hand around it. Like you're just not there yet. So what is the midpoint? You know, where can you, how can you get there, right? Well, instead of going from backyard to full on walk on the street in your neighborhood, maybe it's backyard to driveway, right? So there's less movement, less, you know, variables constantly changing. And now you're just going from an area where there was not a ton of distractions to an area where your dog can see other people passing, maybe some cars are driving by, et cetera, but you're not moving past like, tons of different houses and tons of different dogs and tons of cars. So that's one way to think about how you take that next step without, you know, um, pushing it too far. All righty, let's see. We got a question from, what we say? Hello from Japan. What's up, Japan? I'd love to go to Japan someday. 
uh, follow-up question, how to help my boy relax for a 24-hour long trip in the car? Well, uh, from personal experience, I can tell you that sometimes uh, it's less about <laughs> preparation and it's more about, uh, you know, the, that long of a trip, just helping your dog get used to being in the car, right? That length of trip alone is going to help your dog, you know, chill out in the car. Now, how can you set your dog up for success for that road trip? Well, um, you know, you can prime them, right? You can provide them a ton of mental and physical fulfillment, emotional fulfillment. Um, you can um, provide them like a bone or something in the car as well that can help them self-soothe and kind of calm down. Um, uh, so I would do that, right? So what does that look like? Physical fulfillment. Well, that's pretty much what it sounds like going on a walk, giving them the proper and adequate exercise before getting into the car, right? Think about if you go and you're kind of like a high strung person, you know, maybe going for a run at night or working out is going to help you get to sleep faster because, you know, you've kind of exhausted yourself and your body's needing that, you know, rest, right? Um, so providing physical fulfillment, making sure your dog has had some adequate exercise before getting into the car so they're not pent up and wanting to, you know, move around just as much. Um, also mental fulfillment. So providing your dog with, um, you know, maybe you're doing some hand feeding or you're practicing some obedience or you're doing some duration and commands and, um, doing some of that in terms of giving them some mental fulfillment. Maybe you play a little game where you hide the food around the house and they get to sniff it out before, uh, they go in, into the car, um, emotional fulfillment. So maybe just giving your dog a good massage before you, you load up the car or, um, playing some fetch with them or playing with them very actively for a little while. That can be really beneficial and things that you can do before getting in the car. In some ways, think about the type of stuff that we as people do before we go on a trip, right? Anytime I'm about to get on a, a long flight or get in the car for a while, I do those exact same things that I'm recommending, right? I will get some work done that morning. I will go to the gym, make sure I'm exercised. I make sure I eat a good meal. And that way, when I'm on this like flight for a long time, I'm way more likely to just like pass out and wake up when I get to my destination versus sitting up in the plane, thinking about all the things I wish I would have done before I left. It's kind of like that. Um, so, and then of course, while you're on that length of a car ride, taking breaks, you know, every once in a while to go and provide those same things, maybe not taking like a few hours to do it, but you know, all within all those things can be accomplished within like 15, 20 minutes at a rest stop. Um, so just think about that when you're going on this, on this trip and, um, how you can, you know, make sure that you're setting your dog up for success by giving them what they need beforehand. All righty. See here. Um, all righty. All righty. Where are we at? Here we are. All right. This is from Cindy Leo three. My three-year-old foster is very interested in moving vehicles. She will pull me towards it wherever we are, wherever we are. I have not yet been able to install recall heel walking with her. What's the first thing I can do to make the situation better? Hello from Taiwan. What's up, Taiwan? It's super cool that you're in here right now. Um, all right. So interested in moving vehicles, pulls towards the vehicles wherever you are. Um, you don't have recall or good heel with her. So this is what I would do is I would take a step back. I don't know, you know, this is where I feel so uncultured sometimes. So in Taiwan, if you have a backyard or you have a low distraction area, what I would start to do is practice these behaviors in these low distraction areas, right? So if we know that the moving vehicles are high stim, like super distracting for your dog and motivating in the sense that that's where all of their attention is going to go in the, in the presence of a vehicle, we need to really practice those obedience commands 
in low distraction areas where that is not going to happen, right? So let's say an enclosed park or your backyard or even inside the house, right? There's no moving vehicles inside of your house. So that is the area that you would want to, uh, quote unquote, to use your word, install, which I love, uh, install, recall, and heel walking. You know, those are things where you want to practice those behaviors in a super low distracting environment so that your dog has the highest likelihood to learn. Think about if you're, I'm about to use this example, right? Maybe some of us remember being in a classroom, you know, when we're going through grade school or any level of school. And I'm pretty sure they do this in schools everywhere. But like, just think of the lights in that room. For I remember being in school and the overhead lights just being this ugly white yellow color that was just so, ugh, it was so unpleasant <laughs> that it was almost distracting, right? And it made me sometimes unable to learn. It'd make me kind of sleepy. It wasn't pleasant to look at, and it was had this like really terrible color that for me made it very hard to focus on what I was actually supposed to be learning. And so think about this for your dog, right? If you are trying to teach your dog something new, but you are in an environment that is not allowing them the, op- the greatest opportunity to focus on you and, the oppor- and the, what they need to be learning, then that, that time spent is not going to be as effective as it would be if you were to pay really close attention to that environment and cultivate an environment that is designed to help support learning. Um, and so this is why you'll always hear me recommend tra- teaching these new skills in very low distraction environments you know, ensuring that they're reliable and consistent in that environment and then adding in the next variable, right? Now, of course, this doesn't mean don't walk your dog outside until you have taught recall and loose leash walking, but it means that you really need to change your expectations of what your dog's capable of doing outside compared to what they might be able to do in in the absence of all those distractions. So the first thing that you can do to make the situation better is to A, practice these new behaviors inside in a very low distraction environment shape those positions and help them learn where those positions should be and start working on those markers. And then outside, you know, really focus on your leash handling skills and your ability to communicate through the leash so that way your dog understands uh, exactly what you're trying to demonstrate and and exactly where you're trying to maneuver it outdoor on the walks, right? So um, it will be challenging, but dial it back, bring it indoors, and really focus on uh, teaching these new behaviors in a low distraction environment first. I hope that that helps. All right. Another question from Kay Francis Ellie. My dog has food aggression and I have been hand feeding for six months. What would be the next step to transition to a bowl or do I hand feed forever? So that's a good question. And the thing is with food aggression, it all looks very different. So take anything I'm saying right now with a grain of salt and ideally work with someone like myself or another trainer virtually or in person to help you kind of overcome this with, with way more context to your exact situation. Um, now, hand feeding is great. This is going to, of course, you know, really change the dynamic and the relationship with food between your dog and food. Um, but, you know, in terms of transitioning to a bowl, what I would do is next move to where you, if your dog is crate trained, with they, which they should be, right? We just talked about this. If your dog's crate trained, transition to um, doing some hand feeding initially and then giving them some level of a jackpot, right? So what that means is 
maybe go through some obedience commands, roll through some obedience commands, and then, you know, do maybe like a chain of different commands. And when they successfully do that, give them the jackpot. So give them the rest of the food in the bowl or whatever it is that you're, you know, feeding them out of. Um, Give that to them all at once when they've done some combination of commands that might have been a little bit more challenging, right? And ideally, you'll do this to where you're doing it in the crate. So, um, you know, when you give your dog that jackpot, provide the food to them in the crate, close the crate door, and then allow them to come out once they've completely finished that food. When they're disengaged from the bowl and anything inside of the crate, you're going to take it out and you're going to put it up somewhere where they're not going to have a food bowl or food in sight. Um, That's how I'd probably start handling moving towards the next step of not having to constantly hand feed um, is, you know, using that jackpot. And then, of course, you can start providing that food inside of the crates that your dog associates being in the crate with eating their meal. And it's not something where they're getting protective over it. What you want to do is not have your dog in an open environment necessarily with food available, especially, especially, especially if you have a multi-dog household or a house with, with children or things where your dog could um, you know, show that aggression. So that's some of the missing context here that I think could be really important to your specific situation. But that's a general idea of how you might move away from always hand feeding is incorporating a jackpot after, you know, a chain of commands um, that your dog can complete satisfactory. Um, and then, you know, te- moving that into the crate so that way they start to eat inside of the crate. All right. Rachel Greenberg asks, any advice to help a reactive dog around other dogs while walking on leash? So just like we had talked about, really working that obedience in non-distracting environments first. Um, You know, that way you have a higher benchmark of expectation for your dog, even around distractions. Um, But what I would recommend, um, and this is something that I just need to post this content because I've got a bunch of it of what I've been working on with this Malinois. Um, very reactive to other dogs, super sweet dog, but anytime a dog is paying attention to to Sky, this Malinois, she loses it, right? And it's usually sometimes even like a very close proximity. And so what you can start to do, right, and you're going to need someone that understands, you know, and is confident with their dog, and ideally, especially not a re- another reactive dog, is that you want to integrate on walks, right? So, and I'll show the drill for this, but... um You're going to go on a walk. You're going to have someone else, you know, start very far away from you on the walk and then slowly, you know, start to come closer and closer. Now, what's going to be really important in this situation is that you pay attention to your dog's body language and that you don't put them over threshold, right? You want your dog to have a win here and you want to really actually have discernment over how far the proximity needs to be um, to get into these different zones. So uh, that's what I would recommend there in terms of how to help your reactive dog around other dogs while walking on leash is to have other dogs that you trust and know set up a scenario to where you guys can sort of uh, quote unquote bleed into the walk together where it's very transient and passive and there's no, you know, head on confrontation or no uh, immersion that is, you know, high pressure or extremely noticeable. Right. Um, That's how I would approach, you know, doing that. And that's what I've seen be successful. And that's typically what I implement when I'm working with a reactive dog on leash is practicing a ton of obedience, um, you know, outside of that scenario, but then on those scenarios, slowly integrating dogs together through a very passive, non-confrontational interaction to where they really transiently become in one another's space and uh, can develop some level of neutrality on the walk. All right. Great question. I think this might be the last question I answer. Um, okay. So this is the same question from Rachel, but this one's a little bit extended. 
and she's saying that the the barking and pulling is way worse around her parents' dog. So this could be a relationship issue. So in this scenario, right, this is kind of what we had touched on is that you might not want to practice that with your parents' dog because there's already a, a certain association there, right? Um, so that's what that's what I would recommend is kind of what we talked about, practicing that bleed-in scenario without your parents' dog, ideally another dog that doesn't have as much of an existing relationship and uh, go about it in that regard. And then we're going to end it here on Cindy Lee's question, because this is a good question. Is there any content on obedience training I provide? Um, yes, the, there's a bunch of content on this page and then on, on my TikTok as well. Um, I'm working towards, in fact, later today uh, with my, my guy Marcus that jumps in our streams often. Uh, he's our designer. He's helping me re, uh, redevelop all of our educational products. So this is going to look like the five-day dog reset that some of you might remember from last year. And then the 90-day dream dog, you know, basically end-to-end training guide. And we've been rewriting these books so that they're extremely understandable and digestible for the everyday dog owner. Um, and also will provide you with kind of the, the blueprint for going about obedience training with your dog. Um, so be on the lookout for those. They're going to be modestly priced, um, super accessible. That's the goal is for everyone to be able to access them. And um, that will be kind of the best content for this or that's the best content I'm going to be putting out in regards to just obedience training. But, you know, a lot of the information and content I put out is questions just like this. And um, if you go into the Instagram feed and you read the captions and you watch, sometimes the videos are like funny meme type stuff, you know, because 2022, that's what we do. We make memes, right? But um, a lot of times in the captions, I'll write a lengthier uh, write up in terms of the subject matter and the context of the post. And then, of course, you know, be on the lookout for these upcoming books. And um, probably what I'm going to be doing around those is a live cohort to where you can sign up to go through these with me um, over a Zoom call and then have the textbook workbook uh, as well as a as a support and supplement to, you know, the virtual sessions. But um, I'm excited to do that here over the next few months. We're going to be launching that in the summer here and it's going to be great. So. Um, and if you remember, we did this last year. Um, we had hundreds of people come through the programs at the time, and they were very successful. So I'm very excited to relaunch those soon, as well as a, a challenge more than likely to uh, do some promotion around that to where there will be some opportunities to win stuff. And um, we'll be getting – I'll probably hop on here later and share some of that stuff. But we've got some really cool memorabilia and merchandise coming out here soon, patches and stickers and pins and all kinds of stuff that's uh, really, really cool. I'm excited to share. So. Uh, with that being said, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to either Instagram Live if you're with us live or to the podcast if you're listening to this too. after. Don't forget to leave us a uh, review on the podcast, wherever you're streaming this from. It really helps to spread what we're doing here. And I really enjoy this format of just open Q&A, listening to all different kinds of scenarios and just giving the uh, best advice that I can give based on my knowledge. So with that being said, uh, I'll talk to you guys next time. Remember, training is a journey. It's not a destination. We'll be back soon. Peace. All right, that's going to end the podcast, everyone. Appreciate all the great questions. Rachel, yes, I'll post this to my feed, and you can review it and watch it back. And I hope that everyone has a great day. Peace.